had less persistent this morning as we were in all of our uh, run-throughs. So we just uh, mixed the violin or the, or the uh, earpiece and uh, the handheld today. So how many of you have uh, brothers or sisters? Yeah, how many are just brother? Uh, how many of you just a sister? How many both? Oh, very nice. Very good. How many of you are the oldest in your family? Yeah, I'm the oldest in mine. How many of you are the youngest in your family? Of the oldest in your two? How about, how about how many of you are the middle kid? Uh, but I should know if you were the middle kid. Yeah, you strike me as a middle kid. Troll all the way through, I'm telling you. Well, I, I do. I have a, a younger brother and a younger sister. I'm the oldest of three. Now, there's a truth about brothers that exists, and that is that we must fight. Right? I don't know why that's a truth. Uh, well, we, uh, maybe we'll know what's a truth after today's story. But it is a truth that brothers must fight. Now, there was five years that separated my brother and I. So to say that they were fair fights would be a, a far stretch. All right? Uh, they were not very fair fights. So because of that, my brother used to... Um, he used to go to some unconventional method to try to get an edge on things. In fact, one time while we were in a fight, he picked up a wooden rocking horse, right? And he threw that at me. Good thing was I was little enough to dodge it, so it was just fine. But I'm telling you, he fought pretty. Now, speaking of fights, there happens to be one fight in our family's history um, between my brother and I that has made it into family folklore. You know what family folklore is, right? It's a story that gets repeated often, right? In fact, it's becoming published over the years and it's just gone down it will be one that will you know go on for eternity to come and we have one of those such stories in our household about fight between my brother and i and i'm going to share it with you so that you'll know the story too well i was um, about 12 11 12 somewhere in there so my brother was um six seven somewhere in that age range uh, and it was christmas time and so my mom had this gorgeous nativity set. Some of you probably had this set. It was the uh, Mary Kay set that's the white porcelain ceramic one. Uh, she had all of the pieces. The angel set up on top, um, the wise men, the camels, the donkeys, all of it, all set up at Christmas time. My brother and I got into a fight. Now, I don't remember the fight being that we hate each other, right? Now, if you have a brother, you understand that some fights are not because you're really mad at each other. They just happen, right? We were just hustling. And so my brother, fighting dirty like he does, picked up a pillow and threw it at me. And I ducked. And as I ducked, I saw his eyes get big as saucers. And I turned around as if in slow motion. No. And I watched as the pillow crashed into the nativity set that was on the top of the fireplace mantle. And it rocked backwards. And then it came forwards. And the angel came tumbling down to the ground. And I was frozen. There was no moving. As I watched the angel hit the brick hearth. That's the only piece I remember watching coming crashing ground. Now there are several things that go through your mind when that happens. The first one is, can I fix this? <laughs> How will mom and dad not know what's just taken place? And then I looked at the angel. Well, it's what used to be an angel. Dust everywhere. There wasn't even enough pieces to try to put the thing back together. Can we just sweep it under the rug? 
Maybe mom will never notice. But as I'm pondering these things, I realize my brother is no longer in the room. His bedroom door right here at shut. And I realize he's already come to the same conclusion that I've come to. There is nothing that we can do about what's taking place. The angel is now angel dust. The wise men, yes, he was now no longer a man, he's now men. And the camel, well, the camel no longer has that. What in the world are we going to do? And in the back of my mind, my dad's words began to ring through to me. Son, it's better to come clean about these things and just tell us. Your punishment will be much, much less. I decided to test this theory. Because I knew right now that punishment was death. I'm pretty sure of it. So it's like the only way to avoid certain death in this situation is we're going to have to call dad. And tell him before mom gets here. So I called to my brother, Annie! He comes out, kind of slow and sulkily. He puts something down the ground in the hallway and comes in and he says, what are we gonna do? He said, well, I think our only recourse is we need to tell dad. He's like, no, you can't. You don't hate that much, are you? Are you gonna blame me for all this? You can't do this in my life. And went back the hallway and got a backpack and he said, if you tell dad, run away. <laughs> I had a conundrum right then, right? Because I knew that in order to spare both our lives what it was we needed to do. But the question was, should I do it? Or should I not? It was a conundrum. Right? Well, our story today has a conundrum that is kind of like this. Maybe you've been in a conundrum that is kind of like this, right? Or you don't, maybe you think you know the right thing to do, but you're not really sure if that's the right thing to do. And if you do it, there might be some consequences that still come along with it. Um, and, you know, really, you might even ask the question of, of this question. Am I responsible for my brother? In this scenario, am I responsible for my brother? Well, if you have your Bible, open them up with me, because today's story is going to shine light on this question. It's Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to start together in verse 1. Now, while you're turning there, I'll catch you up a little bit on uh, the story that's been happening, because we're going to kind of jump right back into the story. And so, um, we had Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they ate of the fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they were given the commandment not to eat from, right? And after they ate from that tree, um, God came and interacted with Adam and Eve and the serpent, and um, we saw this moment where God had a choice to make, right? The first choice to God was, do I just destroy the tree of life that exists in the garden? Not a tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, but if he destroys the tree of life and allows for Adam and Eve to continue on, then he has prevented judgment and truth from taking place. On the other hand, he could destroy Adam and Eve. And in doing so, he could eliminate grace and mercy. And so which of these two seemingly impossible choices is God going to make? What we saw is, is that God made a third choice. He did not choose to destroy the tree of life, which would have prevented judgment and truth from being executed. And he did not destroy Adam and Eve, which would have prevented grace and mercy from taking place. Instead, he took them and removed them from the garden. 
Thus he gave them grace and mercy. But he left the tree of life so that one day judgment and truth could be upheld. Now, let's look back at our story, starting in verse 1. You have Adam and Eve who no longer are living in the garden. And things really, with exception of the fact that God showed them grace and mercy, looked pretty good. It says this, now Adam knew, I'll let you get a sense of that word for a second. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore king. And she said this, she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why is it that you're angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, it's contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Now Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they went out to the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's right. Well, that's a great question for us to ask today. Am I my brother's keeper? Pray that as we look at the text and as we uh, expound upon the, the things that you've written, Father, that it would sink deep into our hearts about who you created us to be. Why it is you call that towards us, for us, but that we would be responsive. Just give you all the glory and honor in your name. Amen. Well, you've been with us for the last several weeks. We've been in the series of Shipwreck, and you've seen we've been walking through the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. In the first two weeks, we looked at the first chapter of Genesis, and we said it's important not to know the how of creation, but the who's of creation. In the first weeks, we looked at the two who's of creation. The first was God. God's the one who did it. And that's what we need to know. We need to understand. We don't have to understand how necessarily that he did it. We just need to understand that he is the one who did do it. Secondly, we see there's a set who exists in chapter one, and that's you and me. And we looked at what that meant for us to be created. In fact, we talked about the fact that we are created in the image or the, and the likeness of God. And we walked away from that day saying that God created us in, for the purpose of this series, ship shape. Right? And we began to look at all different ships that are in our lives. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about our marriage relationships. And we looked at how the first marriage took place and that it was perfect. And then that in the fall, when that happened, it became polluted. And then we saw that in Christ, that our marriages can be purified if we allow them to be centered on Christ. And then last week, we moved from talking about marriage relationship and talked about worship. And we saw there's a big difference between what I said is worship, right? I'm not missing here, but put an A in there, and it's worship versus worship. And worship is when I put God first and myself last versus a worship says that I'm all my power and in control, and I will attack everything else and make myself dominant. 
And we saw that it's a matter of how it is that we interact that way. Now this story is right here, picks up on this same idea of worship that we saw in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve and how they were lost out of the garden and picks right back up with the same sort of theme about worship. Now, for those of you who are getting a little concerned, we're going to talk about offering, right? I want to just let you rest assured for a second about two things. Number one, we've already passed the offering basket. All right, we're going to pass it again, all right? Number two, this passage says nothing about money. All right? It says nothing about money whatsoever. So two things for you to rest on. But if you still feel, I mean, convicted, not getting convicted, right? You can always go to a straight.church slash give. You can get more there or, or continue to get there. Um, but we are not going to talk about offering, even though that is a central, a central point of this passage. And it's a central point because we see a massive difference between the two offerings and worship that is brought. One brings it out of the areas of his own heart and of the, all things that he did. He was the worker of the field. I mean, I think of King as he was probably like bronze and buff, right? Because he was out in the field, working it, tilling it, and he bought some fruit from it. And he was like, dude, guys, you should be proud of me because I worked hard for this. I work hard for money. You know, sort of a thing going on right there, right? And so he's like, I work hard for this. God, look at me. Look at that. Please. Then there's King. Or no, excuse me. There's Abel. And Abel watched over the sheep, right? So Abel was not buff. Right? Abel was this guy who hung out in the shade all day long, watched all the sheep, pointed out where it was that they should graze at and eat at, where the grass was for them. He'd walk alongside of them. He probably had really good lung capacity because he was out walking all the time. Right? But he didn't do the same thing. His, the fact of what he brought wasn't because of him. In fact, he took the firstborn out of it, which was the best of the best. He said, here's the fattest one, the one that just produced the best of my fuck to come. And I'm going to go back to you guys because it only came from you. When we put it all in contact, we go, well, I know which one of those two I would be more pleased with, too. One is about arrogance, and one is about worship, and about faith. And so no wonder when we get to the Hall of Faith out of Hebrews chapter 11, it lists Abel there inside of it and says, Abel brought his worship in faith. His offering was in faith. He was believing and trusting that God would take care of and supply all his needs, including his flock. The sheep that he had. That's faith. It's trusting God to provide for you. Saying that I'm not in control. Versus the other one who said in arrogance, I'm in control and God should be pleased with whatever it is that I get. And so it should not be surprised when we look at passage, we see God's response. And he said, man, Abel, that's, you came in all kinds of faith to me. And I am pleased with that. You came in all kinds of arrogance. And I'm not pleased with that. Not even a little bit. But you know, I'm getting a little bit of myself on this story. Because um, we've had this moment that happened where Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Right? And we always think we simplify the story of the garden, right? That they just had one rule that they were supposed to follow. Could they follow one rule? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But actually, that second rule they were supposed to be following. Let's go. What? The second rule? Yeah, it happened at the very end of Genesis chapter 1. God gave divine directive right there, which was be fruitful and multiply. But in the story from chapters 2 and 3, there was no multiplication going on. There were no new babies that were happening. And so sometimes people have tried to say, well, 
Maybe they were in the garden for like hundreds or thousands of years, and they existed in this perfect state there before the fall. And they used that to rationalize some of this idea of science and um, versus what the Bible has to say. Well, here's the problem with that, is that they never fulfilled the divine directive of be fruitful and multiply until chapter 4. In chapter 4 is the very first time that it says that Adam and Eve got together and they had a baby. And we don't ever see God reprimanded for not following that commandment prior to that. And so if you were to ask me how long did they keep the other command of not eat from the fruit, I would tell you less than nine months. I don't think they're staying around the baby was any different than today. So less than nine months. I heard somebody said an hour, and I was like, I think they probably kept with the one for longer than an hour. But I don't know, doesn't mean. But I certainly think it was less than nine months. And so here it is, they're kicked out of the garden, and she has, he has, King. And she names him King, or in Hebrew, Cain, because it means the Lord has given me a man. The Lord has given me a man. Now, Eve thinks that Cain is going to solve all of their problems. God promised in 3.15 that for the seed of woman would come forth a Savior who would crush the enemy. And would restore all mankind. So here it is. First man to be born. And he's like, woohoo! We got this now. He's going to take care of all of this. He's going to crush that evil serpent. And we'll be back in the garden before the Right? It's great. And the very first sentence. And the next verse it says, And then she wore Abel. And say, well, this is big about that. Well, I, I don't understand. Well, listen. Abel's name means vanity. Vanity. So between having Cain... And then in the next verse, having Abel shows this whole chopper thing is just vanity, right? I'm telling you, I think that Cain must have been like two or three years old at this point because she figured out that he is a heathen and not a savior, right? It's, it's old ages two or three years old. think about how kids. Prior to that, they're like, oh, they're so cute. Look at those devils. They're great. And then somewhere, a little after two and a little before four, they change. It happens. I watched it. They're like two going on 12. Right? Three going on 13. You're like, whoa, what's sweet than a child? That's how I know that we're one of the signature, right? Is two three-year-olds. Tell me. And so we, we have this moment where she realizes that this is not going to solve their problems. Cain is not going to solve the problem. He is not the answer that God had promised. Now, Here's the main question I want us to get to today. It's the same question that Cain asked to God. You see, Cain, after he committed his failure, right, he has an encounter with God, much the same way Adam and Eve had their encounter with God. In fact, a lot of the passage makes the same things that we see in, in that passage of the fall that happens in chapter 3. And so Cain has this moment where he's about to engage with something, and God comes to interact with him. He says, Cain, why is your face falling down? What is about to happen? And God forewarns about it. He gives him a warning. And then Cain walks away, and we, what we see absolutely incredible. They said something to his brother. They end up out in the field, and he kills his brother. And then when God comes and says to him, the same way that says to Adam, Adam, where are you? He says to him this question, Cain, where is Abel? It's an opportunity for Cain to come back and to say, I blew it. Got messed up. And Adam, Adam did a great job of saying the messed up because he kind of did the, instead of I blew it, he said, I blame it. And he said, I blame the woman that you gave and I blame you, God, because you gave her to me, but it was her fault. 
He's like, I might be wrong, but uh, there's extenuating circumstances going on here, God. But look what King responded. This is just absolutely incredible. It's in verse 9, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He just attempts to ignore what it is that God asked him. You know, lots of things happened in our house that um, my brother and I blamed on Casper, right? Yeah. We were like, I mean, why should I be more honest about that? My dad ended up blaming on Casper, right? He's like, I guess there's some like poltergeist living inside of our house because these random things that broke inside of my house. And everybody just said, I don't know. You ever done that? Never just said, I don't know. I have no idea how this happened. Um, that's kind of what Cain was saying, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have point pointing out there, Cain. I just, I've been there, I've done that. I've said I don't know three things that I didn't know how it happened. And Cain was in the same boat, right? He was like, I don't know, I have no idea. He just tried to ignore the question. And then, and then as if that wasn't good enough, he tried to deflect and say, look, I'm not even responsible for my brother, right? Now I have to tell you, God is a lot better than I am in this moment. I know that. You knew that too. You knew that God's a lot better than I am. And he's a lot better than you are. Because I, I, I hear all kinds of like sass coming off of him right here, right? Like, what, am I like my brother's keeper or something? You know? Listen. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly right. That moment of story has been like, you're done for. Out of here. You're out. Right? But that's not what God does. Instead, God's like, listen, I know what happened. His blood is calling to me from the ground. Here's your moment still. I know it took place. You still have a moment to repent from this. And nothing. Nothing from it. Wow. It's not until the moment that Cain's punishment comes down. That looks back at God and says, God, that's almost too great for you to bear. Oh, I said that to my dad sometimes. Yeah, that's unfair. I can't believe you would do that to me. And so God, with his mercy and his grace, he says, I came from the deal. I got to relate on the punishment, but I will punish you, even if you've been benched for my presence. Wow. Well, so what is this idea of, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And why do I think that's a strong second central theme that exists in this passage on top of this idea of worship? Well, if you turn over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, now I love when New Testament writers help us pick up Old Testament themes. Right? And the New Testament writers, this guy, by the way, John, John Elder at this point wrote, he's the same guy who sat underneath Jesus' teaching. And he wrote this to all of the churches that he was writing to. He said, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. This is the message you heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. I'm like, you know, you just read that, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a great message that we heard from Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 no. You got this even further back than that. Because he says this. He says we should not be like Cain. That's how far back to the beginning he was talking about here. He says, we shall be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So this message that John wanted to communicate is the same message that we all should have been getting from this text right here in the very beginning. That we should love one another. Love one another. Now I'll tell you that I think that there are two ships that are running really parallel with each other inside of the passage right here. It's the ship of kinship and the ship of fellowship. Kinship and fellowship. Now if you were here during our previous services, we had one of them where we talked about the word fellowship. 
a couple of great stories that I'm sure they're going to come up again at some point. I'm not going to share them today because I just shared them with Cole like six or seven weeks ago. I'm like, I can't really share them again. Let's share them. So, hang on. Keep coming. I guarantee you'll show up again. Here's my definition of the word fellowship. Fellowship is a couple of fellows in a ship rowing together. That's what fellowship is. A couple of fellows in a ship rowing together. Right? They have the same goal. They're headed the same way. If you are not paddling together, working together, all on the same page, your ship will go nowhere. Right? And so it's a couple of fellows in a ship rowing together. But here's my problem with the word fellow. It sounds like this job good thing, right? Where he's all a good fellow. Maybe that's why. Right? I mean, that's what I think when I think of the word fellows inside of it. But I think the word kinship gives us a different picture of this. Now, kinship says having to do with blood relations. That's what kinship is, right? So my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, um, all those who are by blood related to me. Now, when I start talking about my brother and I think about those fights and that fight that we had, you know, the question always comes up to me, why were my fights so intense? With my siblings, right? Why does that exist? Why are we so? Why there's this rivalry between us? The answer really is is that we're trying to like position ourselves, right, as to who is most important. I mean, everything that we did was competition between the two each other. We're like, it's someone like Dom, and even with the younger sister, like, there are still conversations to like, oh yeah, well, how fast did you run? Oh yeah, my times are better than your times. Oh, I'm still better than her. Right. Oh, what, how were your grades? Right. In fact, my sister just finished up her master's, right? And so I was like, oh, so glad I finished my master's before coming out here so I got done before my sister, 11 years younger than me, finished her master's. Because I would have been ashamed had she finished her master's before I finished mine. Right? That's like silly rivalry. Because there's something about that, that kinship that spurs us onward, right? It spurs us to be greater. I don't want to be bested by my sister. And so, however they're doing is like a benchmark for how I'm going to do better. I kiss her. She's like, yeah. It's true. And it's probably like, you know, only ones, right? Having someone better in life, right? They never have to worry about this whole, like, stratosphere of structure of who's getting mom and that's love. I understand as a parent that that's not how it works, but I still function that way. That I cannot allow for one of my siblings up to upstand me, up to me, or anything like that. Because they spur me onward. And I want you to understand that Abel spurred Cain. Abel spurred Cain. And listen, kinship and fellowship is designed to spur us. It's designed to spur us. Now, here's the interesting thing about being spurred. I'm from Oklahoma. We do have horses there, do not live in teepees. There are Indians there, right? But they're not on every corner. And you guys that live in Arizona and are native, more native than I am to Arizona, I feel like you understand that because there are Indians here, right? And just like there are Indian casinos everywhere, that's where you find the Indians in Oklahoma. You just go to the casinos, it's all work. They don't go there to go gamble, right? They just all work there and make all the all more money. So, but listen, we had horses there. Whenever you would wear spurs, you'd use them very carefully with horse, right? Because some horses, when you spur them, you would no longer be on the horse. Because there were two reactions for that horse. One was to put you the hell off of him, and the second one was to go forward. Listen, there are two reactions to how people get spurred. The first one John says is, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. When your life is spurring them on, their reaction may be to just hate you, to get everything about you. John says, don't be surprised by that. 
But the writer of Hebrews gives a whole other side of it. He says this in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. He says, let us consider how to spur up. Some translations say stir up. Others say encourage one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to spur up one another to love and good works. By the way, don't neglect to meet together, which is the habit of some people, but instead encourage one another. So there's both this positive and negative reaction to being served. And God's warning to Cain, right, was about, I see that you're being spurred right now. You've got a burr underneath your saddle, and you need to decide which way it's going to take you. And he said, listen, you need to be careful because sin, in the way our English translation says, he says, it's crouching at the door. And, you know, we had a picture of crouching at the door, right? Because we have all the New Testament texts that said, hey, look, the, the enemy is lurking around like a, a roaring lion looking for who it is to devour. And so we take that same picture, we have that right here, sin. And we go, oh, sin is looking to devour us. It's prowling around and it's just looking to, and no, that's not the picture. It's at all given right here. Here's the picture. I want you to imagine this. He's saying, sin is like a sleeping lion in front of his den. That's a very different picture for a second, right? It's not crouching thing to eat him, right? But he says, don't go with the lion unless you're ready to take on the lion. Don't go with the lion unless you're ready to wake the lion. Because if you wake that sleeping lion, you're going to get off. And I was like, what an incredibly interesting picture. This is so true of what sin is. Right? We like to give sin all of this authority in our lives. The truth is, it doesn't have it. It doesn't have the ability to control our lives unless we go to it. That's why in the New Testament, the writers talk about when you see sin, you should turn on your heels and run the other way. Flee from it. The same way that you would flee from a sleep lion that was in front of its day. There's not a single one of us in here who would say, you know what, we're, we're cute. I'm just going to sneak over next to that lion. We'll take a selfie picture with it. And then they'll put R.I.P. on my gravesite with a picture, right? Yeah, we understand what that is. God's saying, hey, listen, you're being spurred right now, and you need to be spurred towards goodness. If you do good, surely I will accept you. If you allow this to drive you towards good and worse, oh, I will be pleased with how this is working in your life. Don't let do something else. Master this. But we know. We know that's not what Cain did. You know, this story illustrates that the brokenness that happened with Adam and Eve affected the next generation. It shows that it moved on, and now even that kinship, that blood relationship, you know, blood is thicker than water. We hear that all the time. And yet, the very first murder that occurs is in that kinship line. It was broken. And total depravity was in existence in the world. It wasn't just Adam and Eve's problem. It was their offspring's problem and their offspring's problem. And all the way down to us and our offspring's problem. Kinship and fellowship was eternally broken at this moment. Those ships were sunk. But there's another blood relationship that exists. You're like, wait, Charles, I'm pretty sure there's not there's only one blood relationship here. No, there's a second blood relationship that exists, and 
And that is Christ's point. First John goes on to tell us on down, uh, and he says, by this, we can know what love is. We can know how to love one another. He said that he, that's Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to learn to lay down our lives for our, and check out what they use for us. You see, Christ's blood, when it covers us, creates a brand new kinship. A brand new fellowship that exists. And that kinship and fellowship is designed to spur us towards good deeds and towards love and courage. You and I were created out of community and needed community that was broken and lost. And Jesus came and restored it and created a new relationship that you and I can be brothers and sisters through and in and because of speaking turn the lights on for a second. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Kinship and fellowship is not only designed to disperse, but is designed to spare us as well. Homer, right, he wrote two great stories that we still have. He wrote the Iliad and wrote the Odyssey. Now the Odyssey is a great story that follows the Iliad, which is the Trojan Wars. It's about the journey home. And the god Poseidon is absolutely against the trip, and he's doing everything he can to, to sink the warriors. And there's this quote, and I want you to see this. It says, there's always a siren. And of course, sirens were um, like mermaids that were up to sea. And it said that they are singing you to a shipwreck. There's always a siren singing you to a shipwreck. Some of us are more susceptible than others, but there's always a siren. It may be with us all our lives. Or maybe years or decades before we find it, or it finds us. When it does find us, if we're lucky, we're Odysseus, who's tied up to the ship's mast, hearing the song with perfect clarity, but ferried to safety by a crew whose ears have been plugged with beeswax. If we're not at all lucky, we're another sort of sailor, which steps off the deck to drown in the sea. There's always a siren. And if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we have her around us. So are you your brother's keeper? Quite literally, yes. You are your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper. You are the, the keeper. You're a mom and a dad for your children. You are their keepers. To spur them on to good deeds, to love and encouragement, to spare them from the pain and agony of messing with life, the sleeping life. And yes, you are your brother's keeper, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Who's in your boat? Whose boat are you in? Fellowship is a couple of fellows of ship rowing together. It's really a couple of king inside of the ship rowing together. But at the end of the day, the question becomes, who's in my ship? Who am I allowing to spur me on to good works and to good deeds? Who am I allowing to spare me from the agony of the sirens that are calling out to me? 
and of the shipwrecks that that lure records. Who am I speaking to their life that way? That's what we all need. That's why we gather together. When the writer in Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering together, he's saying, don't neglect this right here. But you know what? Here's the problem right here. The communication is one way. It's me to you. It's not side to side. And so there's a second kind of gathering that I love because Acts chapter 2 tells us about the early church when they are first getting started. And it says this. It says, day by day, they attend the temple together. Right? That's the church worship service. But then they broke bread together in their homes. They fellowship beyond just the, the gathering inside the temple. They gathered together in smaller groups. And the whole purpose was to spur each other on and to spare each other. To be there and have each other's backs. Because they needed each other. They needed both to be speaking into somebody's life and to have somebody speaking into their lives. We need that too. We need that kind of community in our lives. You know, each week we have called community groups. The purpose of these community groups is to live out the mission of the church. What I said earlier today, the mission is that we want to lead people to lead the church. And so here we jokingly say about our community groups is that we practice being the church. So we gather together, we have fellowship and fun. In fact, we have these are days that's just game time to just enjoy the company of each other and to be praying for each other. We have times of studying the work together. We can spur one another on with what's going on. And we have times of, of serving with each other and serving the community. That's what our community groups are and they are about. And they're designed in fashion so that you can build people into your boats that will spur you in spirit. The only way that you can become kin to these people is through the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like, I don't know what that means. I might need to talk to you more about that. At the end of this service, I'll be back here at the back, shaking hands, and you just pull me to the side and say, I don't know that I can't be anybody in this room. I'll tell you how you can be. Because I love nothing more for you to be a brother and a sister in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am. Thank you. Thank you for this message today about how it is that we need kinship fellowship in our lives. God, that just like Cain had somebody spurring him on, but God, there were two different reactions. He needed some people to be helped spare him from that. The choice that he made. God, I know that I need people to speak in my own life. God, help me see clearly the things that I'm pursuing and facing that maybe I should be. God, I don't want to go kick the sleep line. I'm going to flee from it. And remain safe in your arms. Father, I just continue to give you glory and the honor. It's in your precious holy name.